What's up, guys? Turn again to 1 Peter chapter 2. Tonight we'll be in verses uh, 4 through 8. And I have to admit, uh, when I was scheduling this, the ser- all the um, messages and the verses that go together, I messed up here. This should have been like three messages. So we'll, we'll normally my, res- my messages run pretty short, so hopefully I don't go too long. But um, there's a lot here. So I'm going to read and then we're going to pray. We'll start uh, with verse 1 of chapter 2 in First Peter. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Um, so tonight, what I want to do is, in the beginning, um, I'm going to kind of zoom way out, and I'm going to, and we're going to do a big, uh, like kind of brush stroke through almost the entire Bible and zone in on um, a couple different things. And we're going to look at the temple of God throughout the Old Testament all the way to the New. We're going to look at the um, God's glory from the Old Testament to the New. This is all one thing and um, God's dwelling place throughout the whole thing. So the temple, basically, in summation. It's the temple, we're going to look at it uh, from all the way uh, for the Israelites coming out of Egypt, all the way to the New Testament, and what that looks like, and the prophecies that go along with it. I'm basically just going to say, it's going to take me about probably like 20 minutes to go through what Peter says in two verses. And um, so it shows you that there's a lot there, and then we still have two more verses, uh, or more verses after that. Um, so let's pray. Lord, anytime we have, uh, anytime we talk about the Old Testament um, and how things worked then and now, uh, there's a tendency to be bored or get lost in the information. And I pray that you'd place on our hearts um, a willingness to focus and be diligent, to work hard to understand what is happening. Because there is great joy to be had in the whole process of what you've done throughout all of history leading up to now. There is great joy if we would put in the effort to understand. And I pray that you'd help us with that. I pray that your spirit would... um, Illumine our eyes and help us to see the beauty and the glorious plan that you have uh, established from the temple in the Old Testament times all the way to the new temple um, today. Help us, Lord. Help me. And it's for your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, like I said, we're going to start with the story um, all the way back in the New Testament in Exodus uh, we're going to flip a lot, and I say that a lot, we're going to flip a lot tonight, but tonight we really are going to flip a lot. So start in Exodus uh, chapter 13. So this is, um, there's going to be a lot that I'm going to leave out tonight about the dwelling place of God and the temple, obviously, because there's no way I would be able to go through it all. But here in Exodus we have, um, we, have we see God dwelling with Israel. He leads them out of um, bondage to the Egyptians. And in verse uh, 21 of chapter 13, we see, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, 
and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this is the glory of God. This is God leading and dwelling with his people. We see, uh, and again, I'm just going to go through a bunch of these things, and I'm going to hop from, uh, there's, I'm going to go over some specific um, prophecies, and then again, we'll see the fulfillments and stuff in the New Testament. So I'm just giving you a picture of God dwelling with his people and the temple and the tabernacle and all those things. Uh, in Exodus 33, we flip over a couple pages. Exodus 33, verses 8 through 13, we see this again. It says, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud, Standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Also we see in chapter 40, verses 34, flip over a couple more pages. Verses 34. So where we see it most plainly, the glory of the Lord with his people. I guess we should, I should give a little bit of backstory. Obviously, Israel is God's chosen people, and they were in captivity. And then God rescued them out uh, miraculously, and now he's leading them to the promised land by, his, uh, his, uh, the, by the glory of the Lord, by a cloud and fire by night. And it's literally God dwelling with his people. It's a promise that God, will, uh, God has called a people, he has called Israel a chosen people, and then he is leading them, and he is being faithful to them, though they are continually rebellious. So we see in verses 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we see here a picture that the glory of God is with man in a tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and Moses was not able to enter, enter the tent of meeting, because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on their tabernacle by day, and fire was in, was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, we can flip over. So that's the uh, tabernacle filled with the glory of the Lord. Now we can go to 1 Kings 8.10. So flip over to 1 Kings. We see Solomon's temple. So now we have a structure. God commanded them to build him a house, a dwelling place. So it was not just a mobile tabernacle anymore. This is the temple of the Lord. This is um, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. It says, And when the priest came out of the holy place... And think about this too, uh, some of us should know this, but we should all know this probably, but the Levites were the only ones who were allowed to enter into the uh, presence of God. They were a select group of people from the tribe of Levi, and they were the only ones allowed in the presence to uh, make sacrifices and to atone for sins and all those things, and they were the only ones um, allowed, they were anointed, they were anointed with oil and all those things, and they were allowed in. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So again, keep this in mind, that this is, this is the dwelling place of God with his people. Anytime they wanted to dwell with God, they would have to come to the tabernacle. They would have to come make sacrifices and those things. So then we keep going. So uh, in Ezekiel, this is the whole kind of, kind of story, big summation of the presence of God and the dwelling, with God, uh, dwelling place of God with man. In Ezekiel 10 we see God's presence leaves Israel. So go to Ezekiel 10. This is important. Imagine the Israelites, this is their, this is, uh, God has been faithful to them, he's been with them, and now his presence, the glory of the Lord, who has rescued them from all the, uh, the trials and the, the Egyptians and 
all of their enemies and given them the land to inherit, because of their rebellion, because of them breaking the command, the commandment with God, the old covenant with God, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And we're going to start, um, actually, I guess we'll look in verse 4 of chapter 10. It says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And now flip over to verse 18. It says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And you can imagine, as Ezekiel seeing this vision of the, uh, and it's, and you can read all about it. It's from verses 16. It's really all of chapter 10. But you can read all about it and the vision that he's seeing. And literally, he's seeing a vision of the Spirit of God leaving the temple, leaving the presence of the Israelites. And so we see, uh, in, in at the end of, uh, or in the middle of chapter 11, I, uh, Ezekiel says, and it, well, it says, and it came to pass while I was prophesying that. Uh, Pelatia, the son of um, Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So you can imagine what he's thinking. He's thinking the presence of God is leaving us because of our unfaithfulness, because of the people's unfaithfulness. And you can imagine, he's like, what is going on? Lord, aren't you going to be faithful to Israel, your people? And now we can go down, and this is, a, this is the first um, um, prophecy that we'll see tonight. We're going to see a couple more here in a second. In verses 19, he says, And I will give them uh, one heart and a new spirit. So he's telling, he's reassuring him that a new heart and a new spirit, a better uh, covenant, a better temple will come. He says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So later, the, the uh, exiles, so, they, so they're about to get ransacked by the Babylonians. And they're about to be exiled and sent in because of judgment on them for, being, for not being faithful to the covenant of God. And so they get ransacked, they get destroyed by Babylon, and then they're allowed to return. And when they return, the Spirit doesn't fill the temple. They build another temple. It hovers over it. And so in Haggai 2.9, flip over to Haggai 2.9, right before Zechariah. Give you a second to find it. Right after, right after Zephaniah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So we see this uh, now, the, the Spirit at this point is, is hovering. It has not gone back to Israel fully. He says in, verses, in verse 4, in the middle of verse 4, he says, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, he's hovering with them. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, he's referencing all the way back to Egypt, the covenant that he will be faithful to Israel. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, so here's the prophecy, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord. So he's saying, what's to come is going to be better. It's going to be greater than what was before. Before it was a temple, it was a building, or it was a tabernacle, or it was a cloud. But the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So we see in this prophecy the coming of the glory of the Lord to fill the temple again. 
Now go to Malachi. It's two books over. Malachi 3. We see another prophecy of the Lord. And this is, think about the faithfulness of God. Israel has rebelled constantly, constantly rebelled against him. And he is faithful to accomplish his purpose. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure that, the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Remember, the sons of Levi are the, the only ones who are, uh, can make atonement for the sins of the people with a, with a ram and with a pure, uh, spotless um, ram. And they're the only ones who can enter into the presence of God. So he says, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So he's referring back to the, the old, uh, not-so-good presence of God in the temple and all, this, and all those things. He's referring, again, he's looking forward to when it will be better. It will, God will fill the temple again and it will be better than it was before. Again, he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It would not be for another uh, 400 years when we finally see this prophecy fulfilled. Uh, and we'll see it in Luke 2. So go to Luke 2. This is really cool. So first we see Zechariah's prophecy. This is the father of uh, John the Baptist who will prepare the way for the Lamb. We see his prophecy in verses 68. Or sorry, Luke uh, chapter 1. Sorry. Chapter 1, he says in verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, and listen to this, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The only person who could do that was the tribe of Levi. And so he talks, then he talks about John the Baptist. But now flip over uh, to verse 22 in chapter 2. Or even verse 11. Verse 11, we see the shepherds and the angels, and again, this is the birth of Jesus. We see where we're going with this, the birth of Jesus. In verse uh, 11 of chapter 2, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is God fulfilling the prophecies that he spoke about. Now this is really cool. This got me really giddy when I was studying Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him. Who's him? Jesus. They brought him to Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. Back in, uh, I'm going I'm to flip there. You don't have to. But it says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly, again, the Israelites are like, the presence of God left us, and now his return, now is just hovering, and he's saying, it will fill the temple again. It will come, and it will be greater, and it will be better. Now in verse 1 of Malachi, in chapter 3, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, in verses 22 of of Luke 2, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to 
Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now we'll keep going. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now listen to this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him, this is 400 years later, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. We'll, we'll uh, reference this in a couple verses in First Peter. Don't worry, we'll get back to First Peter. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own, your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of uh, Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to, uh, speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we see the presence of God will suddenly return to his temple. And now we see Jesus as a boy returning to the temple. So we're now starting to see that the presence and the dwelling of God is in Christ. Christ is the temple. And in in, uh, John chapter 1, you see, and he became flesh. Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally could be referred to a tent dwelling among us. This is the presence of God among the uh, Israelites and among the Gentiles now. This is an amazing fulfillment of the prophecy. Then, we're not done yet. Then in John uh, one, John one fourteen, I think I may have just spoiled it, but that's what it is. John 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is another part, I'm so glad we came here. And the word became flesh, this is Christ, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we started way back with a cloud, uh, cloud by day and fire by night. And it's the presence of God, it's the glory of God. And we've come all the way and seen the prophecy of when uh, God would return and his glory would fill the temple again and he would dwell with man again. And we see that in Christ. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now go to John 16. We're getting, we're getting to our verses, don't worry. John 16. This is Jesus talking to the disciples about the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So we see that, how, let's think about this for a second. How can it be better that Jesus would depart and leave the disciples? So say the disciples are teaching, wouldn't it be much better if Jesus was with them? We'd think but, he's, but Jesus is here, here saying, it's better. It's better for you that I go away. Now flip over to Acts 2. We all know this. 2 verse 4, chapter 2 verse 4 says, 
And they were all, this is at Pentecost, Christ ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes and fills his people. He says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then we go over and it says, uh, we see the the prophet Joel, the prophecy of Joel. This is verse 17. This is something, this is another, this is why I say you can't cover it all because there's more prophecy from Joel. The prophet Joel prophesied, and in the, day, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So he's talking about the spirit that he's going to pour out on all flesh. We flip over to verses 28. This is David speaking of the coming of the fulfillment. In verse 28 he says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So we see the presence of God is returning. It returns in Christ. When Christ comes, dies, and purchases salvation for his people, he leaves and the Holy Spirit comes and fills the believers. So now we see that the church is the temple of God. It's the dwelling place of God. Christ being the cornerstone. And we go down to verse 32 in chapter 2 still. This is Peter's sermon. He's explaining what just happened. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Through the gospel, we are filled with the Spirit and the temple, and we are, the church is, the temple of God. And now, back to First, uh, first Peter, we see what I just explained in two verses. So he says, in verse 4, As you come to him, who is he talking to? He says, as you come to him, first we need to realize that this is a massive statement that kind of goes unnoticed. As you come to him, we now, because of all we've just talked about, the glory of God leaving Israel and then coming back and returning to a greater, uh, and it's a greater thing, it's a greater promise, it's a greater filling of the Spirit. As you come to him, we now have direct access to the Father because of Christ and because of what he's done. We have access directly to God through Christ, the believer. No longer do we approach through a priest of Levi to the altar in a temple, but through Christ we have direct access to God. Next thing, next thing we go to, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. A living stone. And this should sound odd, a living stone. A stone can't live. So how do we have a living stone? And so now let's go to Luke 3. I told you we're flipping a lot. Luke 3. We are now living stones, Peter says. So in chapter 3, John the Baptist is proclaiming the coming uh, of Christ. He's proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he says in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, he's talking to like Pharisees and the Jews, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So they're assuming we're just grafted in because we are uh, ethnic Israel. We are Abraham's descendants. And then John says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. He's talking about the Spirit of God awakening the Gentiles and all nations. This promise is for all nations. So it says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men. And what he's talking about here, as you come to him, a living stone, this is, he's talking about Jesus. He'll say to us, you yourselves like living stones, um, later, so that's, the, that's what um, John was referring to. But this is Christ. So as we come to him, as we come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men. 
So we're, we see a lot of building and temple and stone talk throughout this whole, these couple passages. Christ is the living stone, which brings greater significance to himself being better than the Old, temp, than the Old Testament temple made of dead stone, made of just regular stone like rocks. He is the living stone. This way to God is far better than through dead, a dead stone temple like we already referred to. It's a better, it's, it's, it's a better uh, temple. It's a better dwelling place. This stone, right off the bat, it says, First uh, Peter says, is rejected by men. Men, when he says men here, he's making it, uh, he's making it clear that it's a general man. This is all men. Later, we will see him specifically mention something that's primary for the uh, Jews and the Pharisees. But this is certainly uh, known about all men. He says men, making it clear that all men without distinction are primarily in view, or are in view here, that reject um, the Son of Man. Reject the living stone. He is, it's prophesied, he is rejected by men. But it goes on. But in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Siding, siding, being, on, uh, being in Christ and siding with God means persecution and opposition by men. But acceptance with God. The reverse is also true. Acceptance of man means uh, rejection of God. So which testimony are you going to believe? Are you going to believe man's testimony who rejects the living stone? Or God and uh, draw, uh, draw it near to Christ as chosen and precious? Christ is the ultimate chosen of God. The firstborn among many brothers. This, by the way, uh, this chosen is the same word as in verse 1 of this letter where he refers to us as the elect. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So he refers to Jesus as the same thing that Peter refers to us, the chosen. But Christ is the first chosen, the firstborn among many brothers. We are chosen with equal assurance that to that of Christ who has been chosen. Christ is esteemed precious to God. This is an example to be followed. We are to esteem Christ as precious, like God uh, esteems him as precious. If God esteems him as precious, uh, are we to take his word for it or to take man's word for it, who rejected him? Is not God's testimony greater than man's? We move on. It says, you yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. More, there's more stone imagery, but it's applied to us. Believers are now living stones through Christ. And now is when I should refer back to um, John the Baptist, saying he's able to make these stones live. This is mentioned in many places as, we, uh, as uh, how we as Christians are built up as stones. It's mentioned in Ephesians, uh, uh, as in the church of God. So it's we're a house of God, we're the dwelling place of God. This, this reference to the church is mentioned in many places. How we are being built up as stones to be the dwelling place of God. And it's only through Christ. This is mentioned in Ephesians 2.19, 1 Corinthians 3.10, and in Hebrews. We also are living stones. But not only that, we are also chosen and precious like our Lord Jesus. It's amazing. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, who is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Along with this will come opposition from men, just like our Savior Christ. Believers are built into a spiritual house, or more plainly, God's house, his dwelling place, or the Jerusalem temple. This, we are uh, the fulfillment of the, of the old prophecies that the temple and the glory of the Lord would fill the temple again. We are the temple. In 1 Corinthians, uh, a while ago, Dave already talked about that. We are God's temple. We are his, um, we've been purchased. It is evident Peter is directly drawing our minds back to the temple of God in the Old Testament by the language he uses here. 
So plainly put, we as believers are living stones which forms God's new temple. We are filled with His Spirit and together with other believers we proclaim the glory of God and spread that glory across the whole world. So before you had God, God's glory being with Israel. But now we see it is in the believer through the Holy Spirit. Christ died, rose again, and ascended into heaven and has given us His Spirit to dwell in us. And now, rather than going to the temple to offer prayer and worship and praise and thanksgiving and to experience the glory of God. Now we have that in our hearts. He has written it on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And now we are to spread that glory, which was Israel's task to spread the glory of God. Now we are to spread the glory of God and it's be much easier because we have a helper, the Holy Spirit. We are being built up as a spiritual house as we follow the Spirit's leading and offer up worship to God, prayer to God, and praise to God, which is what the temple was used for. That's what the temple was used for in the Old Testament. And now we are that temple to go out and spread a passion for God's glory. To worship Him. To pray directly to Him. To offer praise to Him. To evangelize to people. To bring other people in to the temple. This encourages us to continue to draw near and worship God by the Spirit's leading. He dwells in us. Now we move on. To be a holy priesthood, he says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We talked about that. To be a holy priesthood. God declared that his people would be a kingdom of priests. In Exodus 19, uh, a holy priesthood is a phrase uh, used to describe two separate things that were prophesied in Exodus 19. God declared that his people would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if they were faithful to him. This is the promise. We, obviously, Israel and us are not faithful to God, but he is always faithful to fulfill his promises. Peter announces this in one phrase, holy priesthood. We are the holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, priests offered animal sacrifices, but we, as holy priests, now offer spiritual sacrifices, as opposed to the physical they would, they would kill a lamb. They would offer sacrifice. They would have to go to the temple. Now we have direct access to God. And now, as Peter says, we are built, uh, built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are spiritual sacrifices? These spiritual sacrifices include many different things and are not just limited to these things that I'm mentioning. The first and foremost offering is ourselves. We've talked about that. Uh, Romans 12.1 says that. I'm going to go there. I should go there. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And in a lot of the Old, um, the Old Testament prophecies that we were talking about, especially the one uh, in Luke, where David prophesied about it. Uh, the new coming and the new dwelling of God would make us more righteous, more holy, because it would literally fill us with his spirit and guide us and direct us. The first and foremost offering is ourselves. Without giving ourselves to the work of God, we can do nothing else of any value. We must submit ourselves to God. Through the Holy Spirit purchased by Jesus, we are counted Accept, uh, we, are count, um, we are counted acceptable as acceptable sacrifices to God. But not only ourselves, but our work as well. Through the Holy Spirit, our giving, our time, our prayer, our worship, our abilities, our gifts, our evangelism, or anything else that we do in service to God is acceptable and pleasing to Him. This is our spiritual sacrifices. Because of Christ and enabled by His Holy Spirit. So we see first we have to give ourselves to God. We have to submit to God. We have to believe in him. We are the sweet aroma of Christ. And we'll get to this, this verse in um, 2 Corinthians later. We are the sweet aroma of Christ that ascends to his holy throne and brings him delight. This gives us a brand new light to interpret all the Old Testament passages about sacrifices and temple worship. We are the aroma of Christ. Our praise, our worship, 
our joy in him is pleasing. It's a pleasing smell to God. He delights in that because of his son who is chosen and precious because of the Holy Spirit. We must know that it is only through Christ that our sacrifices that we just mentioned are acceptable and pleasing. Any attempt otherwise, any attempt to honor God, to work for God, is rejected and despised if you don't have the Holy Spirit. We are priests through Christ and Christ alone and by, uh, and by no other name are we acceptable to God. By any other name we are rejected and denied access to God. We have access to God through Christ. Which this means uh, the offering without Christ is, is displeasing no matter how good it may seem to us. There is great confidence for the believer that we now have direct access to God whom we cry, Abba, Father, because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. In your trials and distress, call in the name of our God because you are calling as a chosen and precious child like that of Jesus Christ Himself. And so I'm gonna, now I'm going to go through, um, this is not in my notes, but I'm going to keep going through verses 6 uh, through 8. So it gets better. He says, for it stands in Scripture. So those last two verses, verses 4 and 5, is like the whole process of the temple of God and the dwelling place of God and His glory filling us with, by the uh, prophesied about the Holy Spirit filling us. And now it says, uh, Peter draws our attention to three different Old Testament prophecies. We won't go to these for time's sake. He says, for it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the prophecy. God was going to, God was going to do it. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Rebellious Israel has broken the covenant of God, and God will remain faithful, and he will take matters into his own hands. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone that is chosen and precious, and the offer goes out, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but with, but with the gospel proclamation, it comes with both good news and bad news. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders, the builders are are primarily the Jews. They were thought they were doing good things for God. They were uh, constantly in the temple. They were constantly offering up praises with uh, lying lips. They were constantly doing things that they thought were building and adding to the temple. But they have rejected the cornerstone. In verse 8, he says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I'm going to close uh, with a couple things. Uh, closing points and application. Verse 6 says, God lays a stone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes will not be put to shame. There is great honor for the believer and the one who believes in the gospel proclamation. This is good news that is being offered to you. We've talked about this many times the last couple weeks. The offer is available, but soon the offer will be removed and wrath will be poured out. But there is great honor for the believer, for those who believe. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe in him? Will you experience honor or will you experience shame? 2 Corinthians 5.17, turn there with me. This is my next application slash closing point. We are ambassadors for Christ, pleading for people to be reconciled to God. 
If you're a believer, you are an ambassador for Christ. If, you, if the Spirit dwells in you, if you are part of the temple of God, if you are God's dwelling place, you are an ambassador for Christ, pleading for people to be reconciled to God. Chapter 5, verse 17 in Second Corinthians. Starting verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us, his people, the the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul says, we implore you, we beg you, we beseech you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he did not just merely forgive our sin. He became sin, so that in him we might have his righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness not of our own. So we are ambassadors for Christ, to spread a passion for his glory. We are commanded to evangelize. We are commanded to go bring others into the fold. We are preaching life to some and death to others. This is again the double-edged sword of the gospel. There is great, great hope in store. But if if you don't believe in the gospel, there is bad news. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Just flip back one page. Chapter 2 verses 14. This is... These are, this is God's people. It says, but thanks, in verse 14, chapter 2, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Notice, he says, always leads us in triumphal procession. If you're not being led in triumphal procession, are you a believer? Are you a child of God? He says, and through us, We have this ministry of reconciliation. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Think of the temple. Think of the glory of God. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, and I hope you are not either. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We are spreading a fragrance that is either leading from life to life or death to death. We see this in our passage of 1 Peter. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we've seen earlier that men, that the living stone, Christ, is rejected by men. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We are commanded to spread the aroma of Christ to all men, pleading with them to be reconciled to God, knowing two things. Here are the two things. The outcome is determined by God. God will save his people through the proclamation of the gospel. We preach Christ and him crucified. 
We plant the seed and God gives the growth. Second thing that we know, we will meet opposition by man. Christ was rejected. We are rejected for being his follower. If you're not being rejected, are you being his follower? Peter tells us plainly, men will stumble, stumble over this stone. Men will stumble over Christ. And they stumble because they were destined to. I have in my notes Luke 2. I'm going to go there really quick. 2 verses 34. Oh, yeah. This is reference back. We've read this earlier. I told you this would come up again. And Simeon blessed them and said to, said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I have a quote by Piper about Christ being the stumbling block primarily to the Jews because they were trying to attain righteousness by works of the law uh, Paul says this in Romans and they did not see that it was faith in this Christ, in this Messiah that they saw they were expecting a Messiah to come and reign and rule and be a king, like a king over top but instead we have a humble servant in Christ Piper says, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particularly uh, inspired book written in the particular language of Greek and Hebrew that, procla- that claims a universal authority over every book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. This is the stumbling block. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way and the truth and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things and this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of man and woman. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian. Imperialism. Despotism. Usurpation. Absolutism. Who does he think he is? He's God. And this is why he's the stumbling block. And I'm wondering if he's a stumbling block any of you you may profess Christianity but do you submit to his commands do you submit to the word of God do you share of this glorious gospel do you share the glory of this glorious gospel with others we should take heart that our God knew before the world began that his message would be opposed by men you should not be surprised at the fiery trial among you God 
destined. This, they were destined to be opposed to this message. And we can have, and we can with confidence proclaim the gospel of reconciliation. We are direct examples and witnesses of the saving grace of God. Uh, in Acts 20, in Acts 20, uh, Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders and he, and he gathers them. And he says, testifying in verse 21, if you're there, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, the gospel goes out to all nations. The promise is for all nations. Testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's ministry. This is what he did. Verse 24, he says, But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. This should be all of our goal for the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. But I do not count my, uh, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We are all witnesses of this grace of God. We are all rebellious sinners who have been saved by grace. We are witnesses and examples of the magnificent stones being turned to life. We are the temple of God commissioned to offer acceptable sacrifices of our praise and worship at the insurmountable wisdom and glory of God, obeying his commands and fearing him until he returns. And I want to close in Romans 10. A lot of chewy things said tonight and a lot of things that need to be studied. Oh, Romans 11, sorry if you're there. Romans 11, verses 33. This is how we'll close. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We should approach these truths of scripture like Job after being rebuked by God. He puts his hand over his mouth and submits to the authority of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that people would take it upon themselves to seek the scriptures, to know you, to know your prophecies, to know the prophecies of the Old Testament and their fulfillment, to experience true joy at the work that you have done from the beginning until now and the work that you have promised in 1 Peter that you're going to do. An imperishable inheritance. A greater love, joy, and faith when we worship with God face to face. Worship with Christ face to face. I pray that we would be men and women of the word. We would be men and women who fear God. Who when he commands us to do something, we do it. We delight in doing it. It's not a burden because of what he has done for us. Causing us to be born again, Peter says. To a living hope. What joys and what glories he has done for us. I pray that we would practice the faith that we say we have. How can you command something of us? Proclamation of the gospel, praise and worship and glory. Faithful obedience to his commands, to your commands. And we not fear you and we not heed those commands. We not follow those commands. How can we understand 
the joy and the love that you have shown us in salvation and throughout all of history and not be moved to share that great good news. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation and I pray that you would put it on all of our hearts, press it on all of our hearts to plead with men, be reconciled to God. I thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Lord, for small groups that they will be fruitful and encouraging. In your name I pray, amen.